my legacy in sport will never be because I win a medal. It just never will. My legacy in sport will always, I hope, be that I will always fight for sport to be better for people. I can win a gold medal tomorrow, and honestly, that matters less than what I did this past November. Hey everyone, you are listening to episode 122 of Hurdle, a wellness-focused podcast where I sit down with inspiring individuals to talk about everything from their big wins to how they've gotten through some of life's toughest moments. On the show, you can expect vulnerability, motivation, and candid discussions with everyone from top athletes to aspiring entrepreneurs on what it really takes to follow your passions. My mission is simple, to inspire you to be your best self, move with intention, and have some fun along the way. I'm your host, Emily Abadi, and this week on the show, I am chatting with runner Mary Kane. Another top requested episode since she opened up last November to the New York Times about the emotional and physical abuse she received during her time training with the Nike Oregon Project. Now, if you've never heard of the Nike Oregon Project, it's an elite running team, and she ran on the Oregon Project under distance running coach Alberto Salazar. Now, last year, Salazar was handed a four-year ban by the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency for orchestrating and facilitating prohibited doping conduct. Shortly after that happened, Nike disbanded the Oregon Project. Now, let's get back to Mary. For those of you who don't know her history, she excelled at running from a really, really young age. At 17, she was already a record-breaking phenomenon of sorts. She made the US team for the 2013 World Championships in Moscow and advanced to the 1500 meter final and finished ninth, becoming the youngest person ever to make a world final in the 1500. In 2014, she won the 3,000 meters at the World Junior Championships and also set a ton of US junior records, also with a mile PR of four minutes, 24 seconds. Y'all, I can't even like, God, brush my teeth in four minutes and 24 seconds, <laughs> but that's, that's another story. In today's episode, we talk about what it was like for her to be so successful so early on in the sport and the pressures that came hand in hand with that. We talk about her running for Alberto and the hardships that went along with that as well. She talks to me about pressures to lose weight, losing her period, five different bone injuries, self-harm, and the series of events that led to her leaving Portland, coming back to New York, and eventually, years later, garnering up the courage to speak out and share her truth. We talk about the aftermath of the New York Times article, and on a positive note, her new role as the New York community manager for Boston-based running company, Tracksmith. I've actually had the founder, Matt Taylor, of Tracksmith on the show before, so definitely, definitely give that episode 
a listen as well. So yeah, there's a lot of meat in today's episode and a lot to get through. One disclaimer that I will throw into the mix here. We do talk about a lot of sensitive topics today, including disordered eating and self-harm. And Mary says it best in today's episode that for anyone who feels like they may be in a similar situation, that they are struggling, you are not alone. I am going to put some helpful resources into the show notes. And as always, I am always here for you as well. You can reach out to me over email directly at emily at hurdle.us. Now, before we get into today's episode, I do want to take a moment to give some love to my sponsor, Athletic Greens. I am on the move right now. I'm actually taking a little week away from New York in Rhode Island. And what I will say about being here is one, it is so relaxing. I feel like I finally have some time to just breathe a little bit, but of course, going hand in hand with traveling comes eating all the things, maybe drinking all the things, maybe. And that's why, especially when I'm on the road, there is nothing I love more than starting my day by shaking up a bottle of Athletic Greens. And that's because it gives me not only that antioxidant equivalent of 12 servings of fruits and vegetables, but it just makes me feel better and it helps me kickstart my nutrition and my day in the right direction. Each serving of Athletic Greens, it has 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole foods sourced ingredients ranging from zinc and biotin to dandelion root and spirulina. Plus, it just tastes good, especially ice cold. I shake it up with a few ice cubes. It's refreshing, just the right amount of sweetness and nothing like those icky green grass tasting juices that maybe you've had in the past. They have an awesome deal for the Hurdle community. You've got to take advantage of it. It is 20 travel packs, a $79 value, absolutely free with your first purchase. Just head on over to athleticgreens.com slash hurdle. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash hurdle to get yours today. No code necessary. If you like what you're listening to as well, please make sure to share this episode with a friend or post about it over on social media and tag me at Hurdle Podcast and at Emily Abadi. Also, two last little bits of housekeeping. One, if you have not subscribed yet for the weekly hurdle, please make sure to do that as well. Links in the show notes. And lastly, I love sharing photos from the hurdle community on social media. So if you have a photo of you tackling a hurdle, going after something you want, listening to an episode, whatever it might be, send it my way. Let me be your hype man. And I think that's it. With that, let's get to hurdling. Today, I am sitting down with Mary Kane. She is a runner and she's also the newest team member over at Tracksmith. Good afternoon. I have to like check the clock and see what's going on here. (laughs) Yeah, one o'clock my time. I'm so excited to have you here. Why don't we kick things off today? uh, I just mentioned your new role at Tracksmith. Why don't you fill me in on what that looks like? Yeah, so it's kind of um, today's actually a kind of fun. Uh, day for me because it's my 30th day on the job. So I've been here a full month. So I'm going to have a check-in with my managers just to see how everything's going, how my work's been for the past month. But yeah, everything's been going really well. It's been, I think, a blessing to not only have um, the opportunity to represent such a amazing brand, but also uh, to really kind of have that space during COVID to be able to sit down and 
kind of work on other stuff and not feel maybe the same stress and pressure that there's no races happening right now um, because I realize that my role within the company is more than just me wearing a uniform on on me. A lot of people listening right now uh, have all different backgrounds, whether they're runners or not runners, but a lot of people became familiar with your name if they weren't already last November when you uh, shared a powerful op-ed in the New York Times. What I would love to do is talk us all the way through before we get to that. I want to start all the way at the beginning. Why don't we kick things off with you really talking to me about where you grew up and what life was like from a young age? Yeah, so I grew up in Westchester County, which is just north of New York City. So I've lived within the New York area for really my whole life, besides a one-year stint elsewhere. (laughs) Um, And I grew up in a family of four girls, and I'm the second oldest daughter. And growing up, we were exposed to, you know, many different things. Like I remember when I was four, I took ballet and I was on a youth soccer league and swimming was kind of my main passion out of all the different kind of after school activities I did. And I think I would go to maybe like three to four practices a week. And um, it was a really amazing experience kind of growing up, though, with all sisters, because I never felt like I couldn't be an athlete. Um, you know, over the summer, yeah, we would watch the men's World Cup for soccer, but we'd also watch the women's. And during the Olympics, I had Michael Phelps to cheer for, but there was also Jenny Thompson. And so I never really felt like there was a cap on my potential just because I was a girl, because in so many ways, that was, you know, the people who I was surrounded with day in and day out. And I really fell in love with competition and sport and I think from an early age, though, being a, a very competitive kid, I really enjoyed having a sport like swimming um, because it's an individual sport. Most events you do, similar to track, are on your own, but there's also team aspects. Uh, swimming in relays was probably both the event I would get the most nervous for and also the most excited for because I would have three other girls. Um, on the blocks waiting for me to try to swim as fast as I can so <laughs> that we would do well. So yeah, growing up, I I really was more exposed to like other sports. Um, I ran, but like in the same way that I think most people do at a young age, which is like your gym coach tells you to run a lap of the track uh, during recess or something. And I was probably the one kid who got really into that one lap (laughs) and I would go (laughs) as fast as I could. And um, I always wanted to be the fastest person in the class. And I don't, I don't really know why, but that was really my first exposure to running. And just after, um, you know, kind of years of maybe dominating my elementary school class, which was only a hundred kids. So not particularly impressive. (laughs) I decided in seventh grade after kind of some encouragement from like gym teachers and um, my parents to try out for seventh grade outdoor track and field. And that season was really the first time I did any like I'm going to do quotes here, uh, proper training. And I I put quotes because, I mean, I was probably running like 15, 20 miles a week or something. But I qualified for the state meet, the 3,000 meters. And um, I was the youngest person on the team on our like national 
uh, four by mile relay. And I think it just kind of set a fire under me and it just made me love running in a way that, yes, I had tapped into doing those gym class one lappers, but I had this whole other world of racing miles and 800s and 3Ks that I had never really been properly exposed to. It's kind of crazy to think about being that age and being in a place where you're running 20 miles a week. When I started running, I was running a half mile every day and it was so hard. So to have like that natural talent at such a young age and have so much promise, that's, I don't know, it's exciting. Yeah. I mean, I loved it and I loved having um, at the end of every school year, we would have this like one or two week long after school program. And it was probably like five evenings of the whole entire school year where I would do what I thought was running training, which in retrospect, I mean, I was like high jumping and long jumping. So it wasn't really uh, true training. I I don't know why, but I, I guess just I had become kind of like known within the town of being like a bit of a talent in running. And sometimes um, some of like the older students would come out and like try to pace me for like a 1K cross country race or I, you know, time trialed a mile as a sixth grader and ran like 547. And I didn't really understood what that meant beyond just knowing that I ran faster than I did the year before. But um, some coaches were just probably knew a little bit better than me and were very impressed and very encouraging. And so to me, it was always such a natural progression from year to year of just adding a little bit more. Um, and I think just looking back, I was helped. Like my my naivete in so many ways was beneficial because I wasn't reading articles as a 10-year-old about you know older athletes training. I only had myself to compare to, and it was just as a result, a really natural, you know, each year taking a little bit of a bigger step, um, really from the time I was a seventh grader to a senior in high school. When do you think during that journey that you started to really comprehend how good of a runner that you were? I mean, obviously it goes from probably a time that's like, oh my God, this is so fun to a little bit more of, wow, like there's some pressure here to perform. So the first time I ever felt uh, like real pressure was in eighth grade. I, uh, the year before, had qualified for the 3,000 meters at the state meet um, as a seventh grader. And how New York works is there's like a D1 race and a D2 race. And uh, D2 is for smaller schools. And I qualified through that. Um, and I ended up going to the state meet. My shoe fell off midway through the race, but I still meddled. I was maybe like sixth in the state for small schools. And going into that eighth grade qualifying race, there were two girls who were seated um, faster than me. And I remember being so nervous. And I honestly just like blew that race because I went onto the line having like no faith in myself to make it and feeling such an immense amount of pressure to do like to make that same leap that I had the year before and qualify. Um, and only the top two girls would go. And I came in third and like way, way back in third. And I just remember being so mad at myself after the race. And I think the reason that I just felt that pressure was a lot of people were kind of, um, you know, just already starting to put 
like in the exterior kind of side of things, a lot of pressure on me and not my parents. Like they, they couldn't have cared less. And I was mm-hmm. anyway going to the state meet on the four by eight team. So it wasn't like I didn't have an opportunity to compete there. Um, but I think that was my first experience of like really feeling pressure. And I walked away from that race realizing that I could never, ever do that again. Because the truth is the reason I was disappointed in myself wasn't because I didn't make the state meet. It wasn't because I came in third. It was because I just ran scared. And I realized that had I really done the best that I could and still come in third, I could have been at least proud of the race. Um, And so I think that kind of experience of just like feeling a lot of pressure from my coach and, um, you know, from teammates just made me realize that you can't, you can't get so in your head. And so I think that really did help me kind of going into high school then the next year. The lesson that you learned that day that, Hey, like I just can't show up scared. I have to show up and give it my all. How valuable is that? Yeah. And, and I would be lying if I said that that was a one and done lesson. Um, I think anybody who read my uh, New York times op-ed and watched the video realized that I, I fell into that cycle of a mindset again later in life. But I think the reason that I was almost so fearless throughout high school was because yes, I wanted to win. Yes. I wanted to set a record. Yes. I wanted to be the best that I could, but the truth is some of the races I'm most proud of are the times that I came in fifth. It's the time I just missed out on something. Um, it's the moment where it wasn't just like a clear cut, obvious W for the day that are sometimes the moments that I think I got the most out of myself and are the most proud of myself. You know, I remember after qualifying for the world championship team in 2013, I, I was second across the line and Afterwards, there were a lot of people who were like, oh, are you disappointed you didn't win? And I was like, what are you talking about? I killed myself to get to the line as fast as I could. Yeah. I made a team. That is all that I cared about in that moment. And so to me, it's just, you know, I kind of realized that probably just my natural competitiveness, my natural kind of desire to please other people is something that predisposes me to sometimes go into those more nervous, more negative headspaces. But I just always have to turn it back to that eighth grade girl who was kicking herself, not because she didn't make the team, but because she didn't try. When you talk about uh, repping the United States at the World Championships and that race that got you there, I mean, what a time. Was that just absolutely surreal? Yeah. I mean, in truth, I felt on that day that I had to make that team. And I don't know why, but I just felt, I was like, there's a lot of people watching right now who, if I can cross that line, top three, make that team, it's just going to mean a lot to a lot of people. Um, And I wasn't really thinking of my team or my family, even when I say that, but just like younger athletes. Like I wanted to show people that you can be 17 and kick some butt and be powerful and be strong. And so going into it, even though I was so nervous, as soon as I got out onto the track, there was just such a peace in me because I was like, I'm going to do it. Um, I know I know what to do. I know how to run and let's just push as hard as you can. And so I remember with a lap to go, I was like, with one lap to go, you're going to be in the lead. 
And I just ran like a bat out of hell trying to hold it as long as I could. And that last 50 meters hurt so bad. But crossing that line was just like probably one of the greater moments of my career because I knew it, you know, me making that team meant more than just like one person crossing a line in second. It kind of had a deeper meaning to it. You talk about this idea of knowing your purpose and knowing that you just had to. And I think at so many different points for so many different people, we all feel this sense of this is what we're supposed to do. But how do you pursue these moments from a mental standpoint to the best of your ability? I think sometimes we just like psych ourselves out. Yeah. And I think that's changed over time. Um, I think with age, you know, like a young age, there's an innocence to you. And so there's just this feeling of like invincibility that I don't know, do I ever like fully want to get back? And it's not to say I don't want to be able to line up on a start line and know like I can win this, I have that ability. But it's more, I think that came from such an, in certain ways, outcome perspective that like the goal was to win. I was there to win. I'm trying to win. Um, And yeah, I came in second and I was really happy to be able to do that. And like that kind of like achieved the main goal and I was just so proud. But I don't feel in that race I was necessarily thinking of the process. Um, You know, during workouts, I was probably picturing myself crossing the line and winning. and, And that visualization is great. But there was never kind of a like, you know, sitting down and thinking of the why behind a workout. So because I always thought of the outcome, I maybe didn't do as well in my training of kind of like compartmentalizing things. Um, If things weren't going well, I'd maybe be a little bit more hard on myself, a little bit more down on myself. And that's not to say I'm like perfect with that now. I, I still sometimes will kick myself if I do something wrong in a workout or something I perceive is wrong. But I guess I just try to think of things a little bit more Um, as like stepping stones. So rather than feeling like me having a slower run or not quite hitting the times means I can't achieve a goal. Instead, I reframe it to just like, this is one step closer now to getting there. I think a lot of the time also, like we let these hurdles or the hurdle moments that we experience kind of sidetrack us. I mean, please, there's so much that so many individuals are going through right now that Mm -hmm. things feel difficult and hard. And it's like, we don't know the right way to get over the hurdle or we walk to this one experience and it feels difficult. And it's like, can I get through this? But what you're saying is that these moments that are difficult or the things that aren't going as you had hoped are teachable moments, right? Yes. And of course, in the moment, sometimes I am like, I know this is a teaching moment, but I'm not handling this well. But (laughs) in general, when like I sit, you know, back down and I kind of like go through the processes that I'm really supposed to like, you know, doing my breathing or, you know, doing journaling or stuff like that. um, I can always kind of just sit down and remember that, you know, I think as a young athlete, I thought straining was how you got to the top level, like grinding it out, pushing all the time. And there's something really powerful about being able to bring yourself to that edge kind of every day. But the older I've gotten, the more I kind of think of the Arthur Lydiard saying of, you know, you're trying to train, not strain. And 
I kind of think about that then even just like a fre- reflecting upon workouts where if things don't go perfect, if I feel like I had a little bit left in the tank um, or I missed a split here or there, I'm just like training is about putting in the work to get to the day, not having that all-out race effort every single day. I think it's also because that feeling of being on the edge of pushing yourself, it's exhilarating, right? It's exciting. It's like, wow, I just crushed that workout and I feel invincible. But I mean, if you're getting to that tipping point every single day, then sooner or later, as you certainly experienced and we'll get to, like you get to the breaking point. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I think for me, what a lot of kind of the maybe training philosophies that I've learned over the last few years um, always comes back down to patience, where I think as a young athlete, um, you know, most people haven't had an injury at a certain age. And so they maybe haven't um, had to go through rehab processes and have to analyze their, you know, biomechanical imbalances that have developed through injury. And so just so many things come very easy at a young age. Um, And I'm 24. So I know I (laughs) will probably, you know, uh, later in my career be like, oh my God, what were you complaining about then? (laughs) Um, But I think there's always just has to be a knowledge that every year is going to be a little different. Every cycle is going to be a little bit different. And that's okay. Um, Change is what makes you better. It's what makes you faster. It what makes you actually able to make improvements year to year. And I think at a, like as a younger athlete, change that wasn't just super linear felt very scary. Um, you know, things like adding five miles a week seemed like an easy way to change. But now I'm trying to kind of learn other methods that maybe aren't just the obvious you know, add five, add 10, add 15 miles a week, because you have to be kind of cognizant of all the other things that go into your training and all the other kind of risks. And, you know, maybe realize that your red line now, you're probably straddling a little closer than maybe your younger age self knew how to straddle. When you say that change is scary, I mean, that applies across the board, right? It applies everywhere. It's Sometimes we get so comfortable with how things have been that when things shift and there is a noticeable difference in our day-to-day, it's frightening and it's uncomfortable. But from those moments of discomfort, again, going back to this idea that you have an opportunity to learn from them, like no one, you know, shows up to these scary moments and is like, oh my God, I'm so amped to be scared out of my mind right now. Mm -hmm. But But 10 times out of 10, that moment, again, it teaches you how to be a better person. And in your case, with what we're talking about here, also a better runner. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've always felt that if you're not able to kind of sit down at the end of the day and reflect on the good, the bad, and the in-between throughout not just your past day, but week or training cycle or, um, you know, personal life, then you're not trying to be better. And to me, in so many ways, just the, you know, not to sound cliche, but the journey of life is just trying to see how good I can be in my relationships, in my careers, in my running. And so for me, it's like to be able to sit down and just reflect on what needs to be changed is really the most important part of your day. And you know, sometimes you might want to push against it a little bit because the status quo is easy and it's safe. And, you know, I know I'm 
kind of like a creature of habit and somebody who in the past has had trouble kind of getting myself out of uncomfortable situations because it's kind of like the idea of inertia where a body in motion stays in motion or a body at rest stays at rest. And, you know, I think I'm somebody who's, it's very easy for me to stay locked into something, even if it's not working. And the, you know, biggest challenge I've kind of faced entering into adulthood and, you know, continuing on in my journey is being able to face having to make changes. So talk to me about what it was like to be at World Championships. It was a really just incredible experience. I I went for the whole um, World Championship. I was my event was in the first half of the meet, um, but I stayed for the second half because I just wanted to be able to experience the whole meet and go um, as a fan of the sport and cheer on Team USA and be able to see a little bit of the city and it was incredible. I mean, I remember being able to watch like Matthew Centrowitz compete and win a medal and that was just so incredible. And to be able to be a part of Team USA and kind of meet the other teammates. I mean, I remember I would go to all the team meetings and just be so excited. And every time we went to lunch, I would try to like sit at a new table and talk to different athletes because, you know, not only was I their teammate, but I was their, you know, a fan of theirs and a fan of the sport. Um, And it was just, it was just one of those moments where it's like, I would never, like, I wouldn't be able to write a book on all of the different conversations I had and moments I shared with people there because there's just too many to count. And there's something that is really incredible about kind of getting to know people in a setting like that. As, you know, American athletes, we often travel to a lot of the same meets and you kind of get to like see people at airports and be like, hey, we're the only people who like speak English, like we're going to sit together on the plane. And, you know, you just develop these relationships and these friendships that, um, you know, it's the people who in so many ways were like kind to me and sat down with me at that meet that I still am like a passionate fan of even to this day. And their character was such that they were nice to the probably annoying 17 year old who was just like trying to take pictures, even though they didn't have an iPhone and was probably really annoying and asked weird questions. But there was just so many very kind people there who really took me under their wing and, uh, you know, cheered for me. And I think a lot of people there were surprised when I made the final of the world. (laughs) I think some of them were like, well, we thought you'd get out early, but (laughs) you know, it was really incredible just having that like support of, um, you know, people who became your team. Talk to me about towing the line for the final. I was terrified. I did not. I mean, in, in retrospect, like, I think I was very harsh on myself afterwards. I was 10th. Um, I think in the, the, heats and the semis even though I advanced both times I did not run a smart race in either um the semis I did a little bit better but both events if you like watch my race I am all over the place the whole time and there was a lot of like going into lane three and getting cut off and just a lot of wasted energy that I think I went into the final absolutely exhausted Um, And even though I was trying to will my legs to move faster, I just didn't really have it in me. Um, But I remember being so scared in the like, you know, kind of room beforehand in the call room. And um, the woman who ended up winning Abiba Aragawi like got up for a minute and like went into the corner. And I don't know, maybe I was the only one watching her. 
but she just like threw up everywhere (laughs) and I just remember like kind of stifling a laugh because I was like oh okay we're all feeling this right now like it is not just me surprise we're elite athletes and we're really tired because we just did an extraordinary thing uh but I remember being honestly like immediately afterwards pretty disappointed because I just felt like I had this amazing opportunity to toe the line and you know ended up only being two people in the field and I think at least one or two people have been like popped since for drugs um although I mean the winner was but I don't think her title was taken away because it you know I guess like the timing wasn't right or something like that but I just remember kind of like as everybody blew by me being like, I don't have anything else. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. When did you, I mean, now you have to take a step back and be able to be proud of that performance, right? So when do you think that that switch flipped for you? Oh, I think within like a day. Because I remember like one of the women in the um, kind of cool down room afterwards, like, you know, came over to me because I was getting a little bit upset and she was like, hey, I came in fourth. Like the fact that you were in the final is just incredible. And she's like, but also the fact that you're upset about it is pretty cool. <laughs> she's like, I'm, she's like, it says a lot about you that you're like a little bit upset. <laughs> so I was like, thanks. But yeah, by the next day, like just watching other teammates of Team USA medal and being able to watch the races and explore the city, um, you know, it was, it was the sort of thing where I was just like, happy and appreciative to be there and so you know I I think any competitor will understand that like sometimes you'll have a really good race and you know your friends or your family and your teammates will all be like good job that's amazing congrats and there's that kind of fire under you that's like yeah but I kind of feel like I could do more um and sometimes that's really good because it just kind of gets you out there the next day to run hard again so also in 2013, you joined Nike's Oregon Project run by Alberto Salazar. Talk to me about what that was like for you. I mean, was this what you thought would be making it, so to speak, at that time in your career? Yeah, absolutely. I So kind of to give a little bit of background, I had first um, started working with Alberto a year before I went pro. Uh, in the fall of 2012, he reached out to me. And we started working together because just that past summer, I had set the national record in the 1500. So it wasn't like totally out of nowhere, Um, but I was so excited and it was like a dream come true to work with such an incredible program. And within a year, I, I made a world championship team and, you know, was not only on the team, but in the final and came in 10th. And so I was already kind of achieving things that like, you know, professional level athletes dream to achieve. Um, And so I went, you know, kind of that first year working with Alberto through it as an amateur. I kind of paid my own way. It was a, I was trying to pursue, preserve my NCAA eligibility. And then in the fall of 2013, I, I actually only took one recruiting visit and I just realized that I really wanted to run and I really wanted to give it the best shot that I could. And for me, at the level that I had already achieved, I felt the next step was going pro um, because I was already kind of competing at that level. And, you know, I wanted to have the opportunities that came with being a pro. And in truth, I also wanted to have the, in my mind, what I thought was protection by being pro um, because I was cognizant even at the time that like, you know, people get hurt, things happen, people's careers ebbs and flow. 
And I thought having a sponsor supporting me versus maybe something like an NCAA system um, might ha- like in- mean more protection because I would have more financial support. Um, there would be no risk of having, you know, like almost a rough college career and then, you know, almost having no financial safety net afterwards to continue to pursue running at my own time. Um, and so for me, it was kind of ultimately a no-brainer to go pro. And I was already working with Alberto. And so, of course, the next step was joining that team. So yeah, that's kind of how that happened. What did that look like at first for you? Like, Talk to me about what it was like to be a part of the Oregon Project. At first, it was incredible. I mean, this is like picture your favorite sports team and having the head coach call you up and say like, hey, I think you have the opportunity to be the best in the world. Come join my team. Like that was literally what it was for me. Um, And I was, you know, on a team where there were medalists. There were people who had American records. Um, You know, it was at the time considered the best of the best. And I was at the time a high school junior and senior. And I was living in New York while the team was based in Portland. So for me, it was like this little like other world that I was a part of. Because my day-to-day life, I was not with the program. I was with my, you know, high school classmates. I was with my coach here who oversaw my training. So probably like nine to 10 months out of the year, I was not interacting face-to-face with the team. Um, Any interaction was just over like phone call, email, something like that. And then for those occasional weekend trips, or, you know, during the summer racing season or during a couple altitude training camps, that was when I kind of had like full-time exposure to the team. And because they were always just such short little um, experiences, and I think just because I was like young and so excited and kind of a fangirl of everybody, um, it just felt like, you know, these just incredible little camps that I was taking. And, you know, I soaked it all in and was probably overly eager. (laughs) What was it like? I mean, I know you worked with uh, John Henwood and he's a a good friend of you and still a coach to this day. So talk to me about what it was like to be working with him here while there was just so much that you were removed from at the time. Um, It was great. (laughs) It was excellent. (laughs) Yeah. And I think in retrospect, I appreciate it more now than I did at the time. Because at the time, you know, you're like some punk, you know, 16, 17-year-old who's like, I've, you know, been at the world champs. Like, I work with Alberto, you know, like, I want to, like, win the Olympics. I want to train with my teammates. And, you know, you're kind of, there's almost this, like, part of you that's like, oh, I like, I already want to be out there. And you have trouble maybe appreciating what you have in the moment. And I think sometimes I kind of had that with John where it wasn't like an outward thing, but inwardly. Like there was just this part of me that like was so excited to go away for college and to join that. Um, but looking back, I'm like, oh gosh, like he he buffered me for two years. Um, he gave me that opportunity to like develop at the pace I needed to. He adjusted things when, you know, the training was too outrageous. He was, you know, kind of that barrier for me that I think inadvertently um, you know, kind of protected me from a lot of the things happening like sooner. 
what changes after those two years then? So, you know, I've thought about this kind of over the last maybe, you know, a couple years or so. And I think the the turning point for me was um, after the U.S. Indoor Championships in 2014, I won the 1500 meters, but right afterwards I had um, a stress fracture, a stress reaction in my shin. And Mm. for about a week I trained through it. And, you know, at the time I was so like, oh, this stuff happens. But, you know, in retrospect, I think I was already kind of like inadvertently getting into some of the things that was like predisposing me to bone injuries. Um, At the time I wasn't really training that high with mileage, but I think it was like my body's way of being like, you, you need to go through puberty. (laughs) Like you have to develop. (laughs) Um, And so I had this stress reaction and I trained lacrosse trained like a mad woman for like, you know, six weeks, eight weeks, whatever it was. And during that time, I think my body, like that was the moment where my body started to bite me a little bit. And I had no, um, like I did not have a bad relationship with food at the time. There was nothing like that. I think these were just like very normal changes that a lot of girls, you know, go through. But I think if you look at pictures of me from when I won um, USA indoors to when I won world juniors, it's probably like a three or four month different, but I look like somebody who's developing into a woman versus being a teenage girl. Um, and to me, I like had no, you know, body image issues at the time. And so I was like completely blind to it. Like I wasn't looking at pictures of myself and noticing any sort of difference, Um, And my training, as soon as the injury went away, was going amazing. I mean, I ended up coming in second, you know, outdoor USA's to Jenny, winning world juniors. Like, in my mind, things were going really, really well. Um, But language started to change towards me. Um, In what way? In this kind of, originally, a lot of it was like, you're not fit. You're not fit. And there was no blatant, like you know, like what that was code for. So I think as a naive kid, I just was like, oh, like I got to get faster. I got to get stronger. And I kept pushing like harder and harder in training. And um, it wasn't until after I won World Juniors that Alberto sat me down and was like, you're too heavy to be able to compete on the international stage. Um, You're not going to travel to Europe with the team. Um, even though I just won world juniors with second at USA's and most of my teammates were going off to Europe for like the summer season. Um, and I was told that I was not going to go because I needed to stay in Portland, um, before my school year there had even started, um, so that I could catch up to everybody else, drop some weight and get fit enough to maybe like salvage the season with a little bit of like a road racing season. And this conversation kind of came up because the day before World Juniors, Alberto had asked me to do two by 100 meters, just like, you know, kind of pre-race strides. And he asked me for both of them to break 13 seconds. And I ran 12.5 for both. So I, I did what I was supposed to do. And, you know, the day after World Juniors, Alberto told me that the reason he 
told me to do that was because he wanted, he like thought I wouldn't be able to break 13. And therefore he was going to have a conversation with me the day before my world juniors race, explaining that he thought I wasn't able to run fast because I was too heavy. Taking a break from today's episode to talk to you all about my sponsor for Sigmatic. They are a wellness company that mixes shrooms and adaptogens with everything from coffee to protein powder to edible skincare. Now, these shrooms, they're magic and (laughs) not in the way that you're probably thinking, but I'd say it's even better. Although admittedly, I have never done the other kind of shrooms. Anyway, Lion's Mane and Chaga. Let's talk about those. They're two of the mushrooms in my favorite four Sigmatic mushroom products. Coffees, teas, elixirs, protein powders, and they make a major difference. Often called the smart mushroom, Lion's Mane helps support the memory, focus, and clarity we all need to stay sharp and do our best work. I'm telling you, there are so, so, so many days that I just get wrapped up in trying to do way too much at once. I realized I went straight from uh, the shower to my desk. I'm like trying to post on Instagram and share new content while also like pitching editors, new ideas. And it just gets to be a lot, right? And that's when I'll realize that more often than not, that means I've skipped my Four Sigmatic coffee. So when I take the time to go into the kitchen to craft the perfect pour over, once I start sipping that, my game face it's on. Whether you are studying for an exam or you're trying to write the next great American novel, everybody has different goals. <laughs> I promise Four Sigmatic can be a great addition to your routine. And I know what you're thinking. Mushroom coffee sounds, ugh. trust me, it tastes absolutely nothing like mushrooms at all. Of course, they have a special offer for the Hurdle Podcast audience. Receive 15% off your Four Sigmatic order today. Head on over to foursigmatic.com slash hurdle or enter code hurdle at checkout to receive 15% off your order today. Again, that's foursigmatic.com slash hurdle, F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com slash hurdle for 15% off your order today. So hearing that for you must have just been so confusing because you were kicking butt. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, but I think like I also was so trusting that to me, I was like, okay, well, my PR is 404. And yes, I was second at USA's, but I only ran 406. And I was too young to realize that, you know, that might like two seconds in a championship style race doesn't really mean much. Um, but I think I was just so like, oh, he must see something I don't like. He's a professional. He knows what he's doing. Um, you know, the assistant coaches are agreeing like he's probably right. So rather than kind of maybe having, um, the like wherewithal that maybe an older athlete would have, I was just like, okay, I will do that. Um, and so over the course of, that summer, I dropped weight really quickly. Um, I had probably been like, my guess is like 120, 121 pounds. And I dropped down to 113 within like, you know, maybe six weeks or something. Wow. And, you know, I 
I ran fifth half mile and I look at pictures from that race and I just cringe because I look like death. Like I have dark circles under my eyes. I just look like greasy to me. Like, you know, it just doesn't look like a good situation. Um, what are the people close to you like thinking or wondering at this time? Because I mean, for example, I as I'm sure that you do with the platform that you have, and and we'll get into this a little bit as well, but we face criticism on the regular. It's like you do one thing and it makes some people happy and you do another thing and it makes some people disappointed and you just are trying to navigate your day to day. And in that process, I mean, my first reaction is to vent to someone that is close to me, someone that's my friend, someone that maybe lives three blocks away. For mm-hmm. you, after getting this criticism from your coach and not traveling, which also must have been like, what? well, what's going on? Like, did you talk to anyone about it? Yeah. So part of what kind of happened was I ended up moving to Portland earlier than planned, which as you can imagine, like, I'm sure anybody who's a parent with like, you know, high school age kids, like all of a sudden having, you know, your child tell you that they have to move to Portland like two months sooner than school starts because like, their coach wants them to. My parents were not thrilled about that because, you know, they wanted to have the summer with me or at least have me going somewhere I wanted to go, like to Europe to race. And so I had called them pretty upset um, and, you know, kind of, I think was in my own way, like probably trying to protect people and kept being like, yeah, like they don't think I'm fit enough. And, you know, my parents don't know a lot about running, let alone professional athletics but to them they're like you just finished second at usa's how how are you not fit like that doesn't make sense to us um and so because i had called them pretty upset they called and texted um like the assistant coach and the head coach at the time to be like hey like i think mary's really upset that you're not you know including her on on these trips like you know why are you doing that like why does she have to move to school early like can't she just be with the team right now And I got a lot of backlash um, from my coaches for talking to my parents. And I kind of got the lecture of, you know, you're an adult now, you're a professional, like if you're going to do this for a living, if you're going to be on this team, like you can't go crying to your parents when stuff like this happens. Like you just have to suck it up and like get fit. And I was so embarrassed. Like I... I remember being kind of mad at my parents for like calling them and for like expressing what I had said to them. Um, And that became a theme like over the course of the year I was in Portland where anytime my parents would come in and like say anything, I would get kind of shit for it and get in trouble. And so I just stopped sharing with them. And the truth is that, you know, most of my friends from high school weren't runners. And I felt like I couldn't necessarily share things with them because, you know, talking about, you know, body image stuff, which is something I felt uncomfortable with. And, and I think I just felt like my coaches knew what they were doing. And so, you know, turning to my sisters just felt like wrong. And I I just, like, I just didn't want to get in trouble. Um, And so, that really did sort of silence a lot of communication. 
And with that silencing and the weight loss, eventually comes some more injury because what you come to realize is that you are not in a place where you can sustain or get stronger when you are that frail. Yeah. And and for the first year or two of me kind of going through, and, and this is like a normal progression for a lot of people, but for the first year or two, you haven't done enough damage, um, even though you're actively having your bones kind of become brittler and brittler at the time, you're like the first signs of weakness come from just like adrenal fatigue all the time. I just always felt exhausted. Um, I had some bouts of like um, athletic level anemia. Um, My levels never dropped to like crazy low levels. Um, You know, like I was probably like in the 20s versus the teens, but I was having all of these kind of other side effects first before actually breaking things. And I just blew through those warning signs, you know, losing my period. Well, you know, I'm telling all my coaches about it. I'm asking them for help, but they're kind of telling me like, that's something that happens with hard training. I'm feeling exhausted. I'm feeling tired. Well, they're telling me I'm probably not doing all the stuff that I'm supposed to be doing to recover. Um, You know, I'm having lower iron issues. Well, that's your fault. (laughs) There was never really productive information given to me. It was always somehow blame, 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 shame, shame, shame. And so that was really kind of that two-year cycle where I was remained on the organ project. And you know, life is sometimes unfortunate and that as soon as I left, that was probably two years were two years too long of under fueling and under eating. And, you know, within a couple of months of me leaving the team, I I had my first or my second um, bone injury. And from there, I proceeded to have, you know, a cycle of bone issues because I had just developed like lower bone density. And, you know, it's like a lot of things where once you do damage to something, it's not an overnight fix. Just like I didn't develop bone issues over the course of a month. And it was two years of probably underfueling that caused the issue. I had to put through two years of work to get out of the issue. And I feel that was really difficult to often hear from my doctors that, you could be doing all the right things right now, but that doesn't mean that's enough to fully kind of eradicate all of the damage that you've done. And so it was it was a process. It was a process. So when the red flags are starting to pop up, right, with all of the, the injury, when does it go from like, okay, I really feel like something's wrong here to I need to make a change and it needs to happen ASAP? Um, it was the second bone injury that I had in the cycle. Like I ended up having four bone injuries and, um, the first one I just cross trained right through. I was like, I am good. I'm okay. I was in full denial. I was still going through weird dieting trends. Like what? A lot of it was just like crazy calorie counting where, you know, in order, like, you know, based on my just like bodily makeup, I kind of need about like 1500 calories or so just like living 
if I did no activity. And I would always keep track of everything that I ate. And I would try to cut out at least 500 calories a day because if I did that for the course of a week, I was told that I would lose a pound a week because my coach used to always tell me, meaning Alberto, that 3,500 calories equals a pound. And if you're able to cut that out, um, then you'll like lose a pound. And so I would always try to, you know, cut that. But my goal was always to see how close to 1,500 I could get. And there were days that I was only eating that much. And the really frustrating thing, though, about it, and something that I think made it really, really hard for me to fully acknowledge the fact that I had an issue, was the fact that I didn't really (laughs) lose weight that well. Like, even though I was under eating um, by just, like, ridiculous amounts, my body fought me at every single step. And the thing is that, you know, some women will experience, and I think in particular um, because of, like, the age in which I was kind of, like, exposing myself to disordered eating was that I would, like, really retain water a lot. Um, I kind of bloated a lot. I would have issues that were kind of surrounded, like, digestion stuff, like um, constipation and upset stomachs and irritable bowels and all these different things because my body was like, no, (laughs) we're not going to let you do this. And so to me, I would look in the mirror and I would see somebody who was still big. Um, And like there were times where it would just be like my weight would just skyrocket back up. And I'm sure sometimes I probably just like had a night where I just like binged because I was, you know, so exhausted and so hungry. But other times I think it was just like purely just like my body trying to like retain nutrition in whatever way it knew how um and so you're also so small at this time to be that size and to be taking on what you're taking on like just like it's hard to cut time and seconds off of your running it's also hard to be that size and to lose a ton of weight Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, we just like, I mean, the thing is, we pulled a, like, (laughs) Alberto pulled the number out of his ass. Like, I'm sorry to put it that, you know, curtly, but it wasn't like there was some, like, scientific calculation because nothing exists like that to find the perfect weight. Like, one time I maybe weighed myself and we saw, like, 113, 114. And so that was, like, the do or die goal. And there was no, there was no reason for that. Like there was literally nothing about that number that meant anything beyond this just like random idea by Alberto. Um, And so it's, you know, sometimes I look back and it's sad because like I, like I knew my weights really well. I weighed myself like every day, Um, you know, Now I know that it's normal to have like day-to-day fluctuations just based on, you know, what you ate the night before, like salt, your period, like all different things. But I remember like there would be days where I'd get up and the next day I'd, you know, the scale would show me two pounds more and I would just like cry because I was like, oh my God, what did I do wrong? Um, And, or, you know, I would drop two pounds and be like, oh my God, I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm going to make everybody happy now. And looking back, that just didn't make any sense and you know it's kind of sad 
to think about. And so now I'm in a place where I truthfully don't like, I don't count calories. Like I'm very, very against that. Um, and it's not to say I don't understand why people do it. And I think, you know, our eating culture is one in which like weight loss is so celebrated. Um, and you know, it seems like a lot of things with running are very quantitative. And so it's a kind of an easy way to be like, make sure you're keeping on track. But I just warn any athlete out there that I just feel it's a very slippery slope. Um, And you're better off just like thinking about what you're eating than how much you're eating to make sure like you're getting in, you know, good amounts of, you know, protein or fiber, veggies or fruits, you know, look at the what versus how much. Right. And so in 2016, you leave the Oregon Project. Mm-hmm. And you, at the time, shared uh, a statement saying that you were back home in New York and a full-time student at Fordham, and you just made the decision that you would no longer be competing in the Oregon Project uniform. At that time when you made that statement, what did you really want to say? <laughs> you know, it was – I remember that, like, week of trying to write something – And I remember my parents being incredibly frustrated because, you know, they had had some experiences where, um, like at 2015 at USA's, my mom came with me to the meet um, just to like watch me race. And the reason she had come was it was like right after I had called my parents to, or it was like, you know, six weeks after I'd called my parents to like kind of help me come back home because... Like, I admitted to them the fact that, like, my mental health was um, suffering. And and I didn't open up to them about everything. Like, I didn't share with them that I was – cut. I mean, I actually never purposely shared with them I was cutting. I kind of got – you know, that that ended up being, like, an intervention from John. Um, But I I was just in such denial – about everything for so long because for so long I was just gaslighted and you know if you're constantly told by like all of your coaches and all of your teammates that like you're just supposed to do what you're told that you know I couldn't like I myself almost couldn't fully accept yet that what had happened was wrong I still looked at myself as being weak for having to leave the program And so my parents had witnessed some of the behavior um, by my coaches and by my teammates and had had some (laughs) pretty heated conversations with people about it. Um, But I was an adult. I was, you know, 18 and they couldn't force me to leave a program. Um, And so I stayed on the team in 2016 despite living uh, or 2015 despite living at home. Um, but it wasn't until after the trials that I think I was able to accept enough to know that staying on the team was bad. Um, I couldn't fully yet like verbalize or accept everything that was bad, but I knew at the very least for my mental health, I had to leave the program because I had an eating disorder. And so when I came out with that statement, which is looking back so wishy-washy and dumb and like myself now is like that's a lie (laughs) at the time kind of did feel that way um 
And I remember my mom saying to me, she was like, you know, Mary, like you are like the, the guide of your own life. And I'm never going to like interfere. But like when the day comes that you're ready to like really talk about everything, like I will be there for you. And <laughs> that, that just gets me emotional. But um, like I wasn't ready yet because I wasn't like fully, I think, at peace myself. Um, and so the day that I was, which was, you know, within a week of Alberto's ban this past um, fall of 2019, I went to my mom and I was like, the day has come. <laughs> like, um, we're scrapping that last statement and we're going to we're going to tell the truth now because because I see the truth. Before we get to talking about the op-ed, I, I don't know necessarily, and I think this is, I mean, God, the right way. I've been thinking about this phrase so much lately and just when it comes to everything, like what's the right way to do X or talk about mm -hmm. Y or whatever. And I just don't think that there is one when it comes to so many of the difficult conversations that we have with one another as humans. But when it comes to uh, you cutting yourself, mm -hmm. do you remember the first time that you did that? And I feel as though that must have been a really effing emotional experience. Yeah. I, and I think for me, the reason it was, and like, I think one thing I've always wanted to make very clear is that the you know, at, at least for me, is that I, like, nobody made me cut myself. Um, you know, the external environment was one in which it was just incredibly toxic, incredibly negative, mean and hurtful, just to, like, sum it up. But I do also recognize that I was probably somebody who is predisposed to taking frustration and anger out on myself um and that's something that I had always been aware of um like I would be lying if I said I had never had the urge to do it before being in Oregon and I think that's just something that I can be like open about um but I had always prided myself with never having done it um, like never getting so low, like so self-hating that I ever did that. But the first day that I did, <laughs> sorry. No, it's okay. I was just really like, I knew I wasn't okay because it's not like you just wake up and do that one day. I just... I just hated myself so much and I just like I felt like there was nowhere else to direct that hatred um than just like on myself and you know I like I wasn't angry with anybody else but myself because I just thought I was failing and I and I knew just based on the language that my coaches used that they felt the same way. And I just was really disappointed that 
these people who I cared about so much were disappointed in me. Um, and I just felt so bad. Like I felt bad for them. Um, because to me it was like, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't like to upset anybody. Um, and I just really blamed myself for that. Right. Right. It's so heartbreaking to think of that feeling of being so alone. And it's so difficult to imagine this system where you tell people that you need help yeah, and no one helps. And how awful is that? How awful is that? I just – it just made me think that like like i didn't think when nobody helped that like oh they're in the wrong like in the moment i just felt like it just showed how much i was in the wrong um and you know i just i hope nobody right now is feeling that way because that is just the cruelest thing to do to somebody is to just like perpetually make them feel like they are the problem. Um, Especially when, I mean, this is about running. Like, like, why would somebody be that like mean or cruel over something that is so in the scheme of things meaningless? Like running, you know, we're not like, saving the world. We're not doctors. We're not scientists. We're not lawyers. We're not, you know, activists. We're people who run around in circles and, you know, do really cool things and, you know, can have a platform for good. But it's not exactly like that team was, you know, social justice warriors or anything. Um, You know, most of them were considered, (laughs) I'm just going to put it out, is kind of assholes within the circuit. Like, we were not a beloved team. We weren't really a liked team because I don't think we came across as particularly nice, most of the people on it. And to me, I just was like, oh, we're misunderstood. It's, you know, like, they're actually really great people. But, you know, I I think I just put the rose-colored glasses on myself and got way too sucked into something that, you know, I, I now look at and I'm like, it's running, you know, like who, you know, I love it. And I think it has the potential to be an amazing platform and, and way to get your voice out and mental health, um, kind of reliever and all of these different things. But at the time, it's not exactly like those people were fighting for any of that. Right. So then talk to me about the New York times. How did that even come to be at first it was such a like looking back that evolved so quickly you know after alberto's band came out like my first reaction was like the the, he was still under investigation (laughs) like nobody had reached out to me um you know i was reached out to like once in 2015 um within like a week of me coming home because of like my you know the occidental classic meet in which I admitted to my parents that I was like really struggling mentally and emotionally um and so I remember at the time just like li- like literally my parents had said to Usada like we're really sorry but like we 
like Mary's not in a good place right now. <laughs> like, please call us back. <laughs> you know, like we don't know what's going on. And then five years later, four years later, it turns out the investigation has still been happening and I had no idea. And so I sat down and I read that full, I don't even know how long that report is, but the full thing. And what many people might not realize is that I, like, I was not on the team um, during almost any of the periods that were brought up in which got Alberto banned. So, like, stuff with L-carnitine and such was happening, like, before my time. And so when I joined, I was told stories about those things, but they were all lies. And I didn't know that like up until reading the USADA report where they're like, oh, athletes were told that USADA, you know, gave Alberta permission to do this, but that's actually not true. And so I'm sitting there like, oh my God, I thought he was given permission. Like that's what I was told. Um, and so I just like scoured that report and looked at every single line where it was like, athletes were told this, but in actuality, you know, X, Y, and Z happened. And I just felt such a, like, physical, like, slap-in-the-face reaction to that because I was like, they lied. And that was the first moment where I could vocalize that. Like, up until that time, I couldn't you know, like I, I already knew that the sports psych was lying about being a sports psych. And I, I, you know, I knew certain things were lies, but to really just see such an egregious mistelling of a situation was like mind blowing. And it made me sit down for the better part of probably like three days where I was just like literally going back through emails and texts and all this different stuff. And just, you know, finally at a place where I was able to be like, none of that was okay. Like none of that situation was okay. And it wasn't until that I was able to see that like there was definitive proof that I was lied to that I think I was able to come to terms with the fact that there were other really dark truths of my time in Oregon um, and, you know, at first, like I just wrote a piece, um, and, and honestly, my first outline of writing was like very misdirected anger where I was like, I am just screaming out on a piece of paper about why nobody helped me. And I like sent it to Lindsay Krauss because, um, my friend Alexi Pappas like had her information and I had asked Alexi for it and was a little cryptic to Alexi about what I was doing. And when I sent something to Lindsay at first, she was like, well, I don't, I don't really know what you're going to write, but like just shoot anything over to me. Um, and I sent her my piece and she just immediately within like probably like an hour emailed me and was like, can you come down to the New York times right now? <laughs> can we meet in person please? I was like, sure. Um, and I sat down with her for a few hours and just everything spilled out. And 
I just like really opened up to her in a way that, you know, I think she just made me feel safe. I trusted her. I knew the work she had done with Allison, Alicia, Kara, um, and the women that had come over in and come out in the dream maternity piece. And I just, I just told her my story and she, um, was incredible and supportive and just like helped me like have a space to work through it both verbally and, and in writing. And the six weeks or so that we worked on the piece or it was probably even like shorter. It was probably like four or five weeks that we worked on it. Um, were like the longest weeks of my life because as soon as I wanted it to be out, like I wanted it now and I had no patience. Like every day I was emailing Lindsay, like, are we going to drop it yet? And I think for me that, that, that need, that desire to like let it out was because as soon as I saw how bad everything was, I didn't want anybody else to be going through that. And the thought that anybody else could be trapped in that situation and feeling that level of shame and blame and guilt that I did was just so sickening. And I didn't expect it to be big. I expected it to just stay within the track world. And, you know, Lindsay kind of felt differently. She was like, either everybody will read it or nobody will read it. But I think she kind of leaned towards the everybody will side. But I, like, I didn't care who read it. I didn't care how many. I just, I thought it would stay within the track world. And, maybe help one person. That was all I needed. Were you scared? Not really. I mean, I sat down with my parents and I told them, I was like, well, I'm never going to get a contract again. <laughs> I was like, I'm like I, I literally said to them, I'm like, I want to pursue running. I want to continue running. I was like, but I just, I'm going to be open with you that I'm probably going to have to go through different, different avenues, um, whether it's having another like full-time, part-time job, some other situation. But like we are burning our bridges today. And I was like, just be prepared for that. Know that I know that and I'm okay with that. And so I was like fully at peace with that, fully prepared for that, did not care, honestly did not want to be a part of that system anymore. Um, But most of the fear came more from like, like, like the holding it in process. Like as soon as it was out, I felt free. There was no fear. And I knew Mm -hmm. as soon as it was going to be like thrown out into the world, I would be okay. But it was more for that like buildup that I just wanted to scream off a roof everything. To speak out in that way, in such a bold way. I, I admire you for that. I mean, I had a woman on the show, her name is Ash Wilking. In her episode, she said, be careful that the sword you fall on to inspire others isn't the one that you injure yourself with. And I think that this definitely could have gone multiple ways, especially when it comes to that feedback loop, right? And people responding to what it was that you were so ready to put out there. So talk to me then about the response component. Mm. So I think for me, like one thing that I think people maybe don't realize is that I was used to the media not always being super supportive of me. And and not and not that it was like negative per se, but there was this level of like fascination of whether or not I would burn out and, 
you know, talking about my body and my development. And, um, you know, I was used to like, I mean, almost no professional track and field athlete who competed with and or against me ever reached out to me when I left the Oregon Project. I don't know if I can literally name one person who did. So to me, there was no, like, I was not going to injure myself on that sword because people had already shown me that they did not care about me. And so if people were going to be negative, come at me. I'm used to that. You know, this is the same sport. This was the same culture where, you know, nobody ever showed that they cared. So I wasn't, you know, yes, I had this incredible young career and people followed me and it was positive and woo, but like people dropped me like a hot potato as soon as they could. And so to me, it wasn't like there was going to be this big shocking moment of, you know, oh my gosh, like people are mean because I was just kind of used to that at that point. Um, And so for me, what was really surprising was the level of positivity and support that came from it, just from the general larger running community. Um, And of course, some fellow pros have since, you know, like come out and, and spoken to me and said some just really, really kind things and have like made me feel more welcome maybe again within that professional sporting world. Um, But to me, it was more like overwhelming and surprising to have positivity because that was the thing I was not expecting to have. Um, And it was both really beautiful, really kind. and, And as I always say, also just a little bit sad because I think every time it made me realize how many people go through experiences such as this. And to me, that's just so wrong and so bad. And I almost feel sad that I I share this story with so many other people because I wish nobody had to go through this sort of behavior with, you know, just terrible, like negative experiences in sport. Can you recall any specific interactions that you had after this all went live that made you appreciate people from your past that maybe you hadn't before? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think, you know, right off the bat, you know, Kara Goucher was just an amazing, like, friend during this process where about a week before I um, – you know, had the article released, I reached out to Kara and was just like, hi, (laughs) I don't know if we ever spoken before, but I just want to let you know that I'm doing this. And within like five minutes, she messaged me back and was like, do you want to hop on the phone right now? And I was like, yes, please. Um, Because of course she was somebody who had been really at the forefront of um, the USADA investigation and who for years I had followed and just always felt really just truthfully confused by because I, as an athlete, just was always, again, hearing this like other side to the story. So it's not that I felt ever that she was like per se like wrong about what happened, but I was like, oh, maybe it's just like a total miscommunication by everybody. Um, And being able to finally like sit and talk with her was just the most like 
cathartic experience because it was just such a shared experience like so much of it and I think some of the like sides of coaching you know Kara maybe hadn't quite spoken as publicly about before um you know we were able to like share in those experiences and just talk it through and just kind of like try to heal a little bit together and of course after my story came out then um many other women such as Amy Oder Begley um Jackie Arison, just like kind of countless other people stepped in and said, yes, this happened. Um, you know, we we had similar experiences. And then, of course, um, you know, two of my past teammates, Cam Levins and Dathan Ritzenhine, also came out and, you know, shared their support. Um, and I think those people are the people who I always – will just always mean something to me because they really understood what I went through, either through witnessing it, through experiencing it themselves. And to be able to stand up and say that I think was incredibly brave. And, you know, it it's it saddens me that, you know, there are many other voices who never have stepped forward or if anything um, behind closed doors denied stuff or you know said negative things and you know to me that's just sad because it's just a denial of what happened um but it's it's the people who came forward who really just I think will be forever teammates for me what about running right now excites you I think just the journey of trying to get back up to speed excites me like there's something really fun about chasing big goals again. And I think for a while, even though I would talk the talk, I wasn't really walking the walk in my training because I was either hurt or, you know, too scared or too cautious or, you know, whatever. But now I'm just like, screw it. I'm trying to see if I can make an Olympic team. Like, why not? <laughs> like, Let's do it. And so to me, kind of like going out every day and like being able to like really dream again, I think is fun. Um, And I think if it you know, if those things never happen, yeah, I'll be disappointed. But that's not the only reason I'm running. I'm running because it's fun. It feels good. I like the journey. I like pushing myself. And um, it's a great thing to share with other people. I mean, the other day, my boyfriend and I went for a run together and it was just an easy 30 minutes. And it was just really nice to be able to share that and, and have those miles together and, you know, chat. And even when you're silent, just you know, know you're sharing something with somebody else. Do you have moments these days of frustration thinking about where you were versus where you are now? Yeah, I'd be lying if I said no. But I think usually, usually I honestly am kind of like at a place right now where I've kind of finally accepted that like this is just where I am. And there's going to be something really rewarding at the end of the day about my running career. And whether that's me achieving all the goals that I had set out for myself at 16 or coming up short in all of them, but having tried my absolute best, you know, I think that's really all that I care about now. And so, yeah, I'll have those moments like on a bad day where I'm like, dang it, had I had that never happened, I could have done X, Y, and Z. But the truth is, 
it didn't happen. So how would I know if that was ever, ever in the cards? You know, maybe had everything, you know, gone super smoothly, I would have hit other bumps in the road. Or maybe I would have like been burnt out so hard that I never would have come back to running and I would have left the sport um, because of just that mental just destruction that had happened. And so to me, it's like of all the imaginary outcomes, they don't exist. They're not real. They're not here. And so I can't live in a past or in a false future. I just have to do my best to turn up every day and also realize that there's kind of something fun about being the underdog. There was something really cool about being a 17-year-old who nobody kind of expected to hit the circuit. And, you know, I kind of look at next year and I'm like, it'd be really fun to like shock some people. And you know what? If I don't, well, maybe I'll do it the year after and just keep putting in the work, keep putting in the miles and, you know, see what I can do. But I think another thing I kind of like to leave people with is the fact that my legacy in sport will never be because I win a medal. It just never will. My legacy in sport will always, I hope, be that I will always fight for sport to be better for people. Um, I think that's something that actually has a lasting impact versus being able to just have this tangible piece of metal. And that doesn't mean that I don't want that. That doesn't mean it doesn't excite me every day to try to chase that. But it's also humbling to realize that I can win a gold medal tomorrow. And honestly, that matters less than what I did this past November. People come to your social media page and they see a woman who's the NYC manager for Tracksmith and a runner. When you look in the mirror, what is it that you see looking back at you? You know, my younger self would have always just like inserted whatever sport I was doing at the time. And of course, most recently, that would always be runner. Um, But now I just like I just see me and that person, somebody who's probably sometimes funny, probably sometimes emotional, probably sometimes annoying, um, loud, is going to speak their mind, is passionate about their family and their friends and, um, you know, about so many different topics. And, you know, I think when people ask you to define yourself, it's such a limiting moment um, because at the end of the day, we as people have so much opportunity and who I am right now is probably going to be different than who I am in the future and just continuing to strive to like look at myself with more of a more of a smile on my face and know that you know I'm kind of being the best Mary I can be every day. You have the opportunity right now to offer the Mary who is feeling as though she's not good enough, who's worried about her weight, who is cutting and feels so alone. You have the opportunity to offer that Mary a piece of advice looking back on that hurdle moment right now. What is it that you tell her? I think the biggest thing I've always thought back on is I wanted that girl to know and I want that girl who's out there right now or boy to know that they're not alone. You are never alone. No matter what you're going through, there is always somebody who loves you. There's always somebody who cares about you. There's always somebody who needs you at the end of the day. And my biggest advice is to find that person. And I know in my case, it took a couple tries. It wasn't my coach. It wasn't my teammates. 
it was my family, it was my coach here in New York, and it was about trying to find that person and ask for help and know that the strong and the brave thing to do is to turn to somebody. Um, You don't have to do it alone because you are not alone. Thanks so much, Mary. Your honesty is just, it's beautiful. And I think there's no doubt about it in my mind that you're doing exactly what it is that you said you want to do. And like, this is your legacy and this is the important stuff. And this message is so powerful. Thank you. And and I just hope like one thing everybody knows is that sometimes people have kind of turned to me and been like, wow, it's, it's so brave that you speak your truth and it, and it's so powerful that you do. And to me, I'm like, no, it's, it's what you have to do. Because at the end of the day, if you're going to kind of go through life and hold hold it in and, and lie to yourself and lie to those around you, you're just never going to be able to unlock that full potential that you are that you owe to yourself and that you deserve. Um, and so to me, it's like don't – no matter how hard it is and no matter how scary it is, don't, don't hold that back. Don't hold that in. You know, speak your truth. Speak your mind. Um, and say it loud and proud. Thank you so, so much. Please take a moment, leave a quick review of the show by clicking the link with the description to today's episode. We all face multiple hurdles in life. I want to hear about yours. Reach out to me at emily at hurdle.us. Connect with the podcast, Instagram, Twitter, at hurdle podcast. Mary, how can they keep up with you? Give me all the details. I guess you can follow me on you know the social medias, <laughs> Instagram, Twitter. My handle's runmarykane. Um, and of course, my as my new role with Tracksmith as the NYC community manager, um, keep an eye on their pages as well. Um, I'll be, you know, hopefully kind of unveiling some new stuff soon that I'll, I've been working on for this past month. So I'm excited to be sharing that. I'm excited to be a part of it. <laughs> I am at Emily Abadi at Hurdle Podcast. Another hurdle conquered. Catch you guys next time. <laughs>